Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today, I'm going to be telling you guys about the Hintakific murders. So grab yourselves a strong cup of joe, and let's dive on in. We will continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly, but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more Crime Over Coffee content. By signing up for our Patreon, you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content. To check out this opportunity and sign up for the Crime Over Coffee Patreon, visit www.patreon.com slash crimeovercoffeepod. Thank you again for all of your support. In 1922, the Gruber family was all living on a little farmstead known to the area as Hintakafik in a town called Weidhofen, Germany. The family consisted of Victoria Grable, who was 35 and a widow, her two children, seven-year-old Cecilia and two-year-old Joseph, her parents, 63-year-old Andreas and 72-year-old Cecilia, and then their maid was also living with them who was and she was 44 year old maria Baumgartner. the family was pretty much known to just keep to themselves they had a lot of animals on their farm and they did have a few neighbors but they didn't really go out of their way to hang out with a lot of people or to have their public like their lives known to the public they were pretty private this could potentially be because in 1915 Victoria and Andreas, her father, were accused of incest after a report had been submitted anonymously. I I could imagine that maybe if those were rumors that were going around, especially in that time period, you'd probably kind of keep to yourself. So they were actually put on trial after this report came in and then they were found guilty. So Andreas ended up serving a year in prison and Victoria served a little bit of time. I believe she only served a month. I saw some conflicting reports. Some said a month, some said two months, and some said a year. So the majority of the articles I found said a month. It was speculated that Yosef was potentially a child from her father from that incest relationship. But it was never, from what I understand, it was never proven exactly who Yosef's father was. In approximately November 1921, The family's previous maid had actually quit her job because she felt that the house had been haunted. She talked to Andreas multiple times and told him and others that she had heard a lot of voices and footsteps throughout the house and in the attic. And she, nothing ever happened. Like nobody took this claim seriously ever. But Andreas had talked to neighbors and others about the house and concerns that he had he didn't necessarily think that the house was haunted but he had found scratch marks on the lock to their tool shed he had randomly found a newspaper in their house that nobody had nobody that lived there had brought in the keys to the house had disappeared at one point nobody could find them and one of the more concerning things is that andreas had actually found footprints in the snow that led to the house 
but never left. Yep, that's a little unsettling. Yeah, and so he he talked to people about it, but he didn't call the police because he was like, you know, we live in this small town. Nothing happens here. They were about 45 miles from the nearest police station. And so he felt like it was kind of a waste of time and resources because he didn't really feel like anything was happening. One of his neighbors had offered as well to allow him to borrow a gun just to protect his family in case something was going on. But Andreas had declined to take that. The maid that I was referring to that is now with the family, Maria, her first day on the job was actually March 31st. So she was new to the family and had, like I said, taken over for the previous maid who had quit. In the beginning of April 1922, neighbors and people in the community started to become concerned because Cecilia had missed school for a couple of days, which was unlike her. And the entire family had missed church. The mailman also reported that while they'd still been receiving mail, it had just been piling up and nobody had been grabbing it. So there were a few little concerns. However, the chimney to the house still had smoke pouring out of it. So everybody thought that the family was just there. The And the family's animals all appeared to be taken care of. So there was no immediate concern. There were just a few things that seemed out of normal for the family. On April 4th, 1922, Loren Schlittenbauer noticed all of these things in his neighbor's house and was like, you know, there's these weird things happening and like it kind of appears that the family's okay, but I haven't actually seen the family members. So we should probably go and check on them. He gets two of his neighbors, Jacob Siegel and Michael Pohl, to help him investigate. And when they get there, they find that the front door to the house is locked. So they go out to the barn just to check on things out there. They discover a gruesome scene. They discover four bodies, including the body of Victoria, her daughter, Cecilia, and both of her parents, Andreas and Cecilia. The bodies had all been stacked on top of each other, and there were boards and hay covering them, almost to kind of keep them out of sight a little bit. The guys are like, well, I know that there's at least two other people that are part of this family, and they're not out here. So they want to go check the house. And while they can't get in the front door because it's locked, they find a hallway that connects the barn to the main house that's not locked. And so they go through that. And while they're looking around, they find the body of the maid Maria and two-year-old Yosef, both in their beds. They had both died from blunt force trauma. The injuries to all of the family members were really brutal. They had all been beaten. Their skulls were smashed in. There had been some cases of strangulation on some of them. They had wounds that were just gaping. It was believed that all of these wounds came from a pickaxe. The farm animals and the family dog were all unharmed during this. And like I had mentioned, they had actually been taken care of throughout this whole thing. On April 5th, 1922, an autopsy was conducted on the victims and it was determined that they had all died from blood force trauma to the head. And like I said, that the weapon was most likely a pickaxe or a mattock, which they did not find a weapon at the scene. They also did notice strangulation marks on some of them. The most horrific thing is that from the autopsy, they could tell that the seven-year-old Cecilia had most likely survived for several hours after the attack and had ended up passing away within a few hours. Like I had mentioned, the closest police department was about 45 miles away 
in Munich, Germany. So it took a little while for any police officers to arrive on the farm. While they were waiting for police officers to arrive, Lorenz, Jacob, and Michael alerted multiple of the neighbors about what had happened at the farm, what they'd found. And so by the time the lead investigator, George Ringruber, arrived, there had already been dozens and dozens of people that had walked through the crime scene. And so evidence had been destroyed and it just ultimately compromised the entire investigation. I hate how often that happened. That was like the big thing with Velisca. All the neighbors were there. Like someone took a piece of someone's skull that was crushed in. Like crap like that. It's insane. I don't get why it's a thing that you would do. Like, and I, it's probably just a lot of lack of education from back then. But nowadays, could you imagine walking mm-hmm. onto a scene and be like, this is what I'm going to do right now? Right. I, I don't know. It's just, it's sad that it could kind of make a break a case almost, you know? And then it, it does mm-hmm. make it difficult because if you find DNA evidence of somebody that had been at the scene, it's like, well, were they there because they committed the crime or were they there because they were there just snooping? Yeah, it'd be smart for a killer to kind of stick around and be like to a bunch of neighbors like, hey, let's go check it out, you know, get everyone else's crap yeah, in exactly. there. Yeah, exactly. That's the greatest way to destroy a crime scene without looking suspicious. Mm-hmm. And then it would explain why you're... DNA exactly so police start trying to piece together exactly what had happened to the family and they were able to determine that on march 31st 1922 the killer had somehow lured each of the family members into the barn one by one and then killed them through the use of strangulation and beatings and then they would go into the house and murder the maid and two-year-old joseph The other thing that police found while they were investigating is that the killer had not left the home after committing the murders, but they believed that they had actually stayed in the house for multiple days. Did they think that maybe the the, um, murderer also was taking care of the farm animals and the dogs? So they also think that that's why the neighbors had seen smoke still coming out of the chimney. Mm -hmm. But that's like a whole other layer of creep. It is like the killer just lived there. They, They ate the family's food. They fed the animals. They milked the cows like Which is something that police point to later on is the person that did this would have had to know the layout of the farm, know the family enough to know where everything would be, like where the food was and how to do all this stuff. And so it makes you question your suspect pool, right? Well, and know that likely nobody's going to show up. No one else is going to be coming by the house. Yeah, so it was either somebody that had stalked the family for a long period of time without the family knowing, or... Somebody that had a close relationship with one or all of the family members enough to know all of these details. Because, you know, there's people in my life where, like, I know that they have these animals and stuff, but I don't know where all the food is or exactly how to take care of all of their animals and these things. So, but there are people also that I'm closer with that I would know how to do that for them. So it's just kind of... It, it, it's a little more telling as to who could have done this. I wonder, too, the alternative is it's a stranger, but they were hiding out in the barn in the house before and watching the family because they were talking about hauntings and, like, weird stuff. Maybe it was a person who was, like, camping out in their house waiting for the perfect moment. Yeah, and so police actually start to question that because, so they interview the former maid about why they she thought the property was haunted because when they're talking with neighbors the neighbors are like you know this is what had happened and andreas had seen all this and he'd he'd seen footsteps that led to the house but then never led away there's all these suspicious things and so police were like 
wanting to find out more about it. When they asked the maid, she's like, you know, I kept hearing footsteps up in the attic and like thought I could hear people talking and walking around. But I also constantly felt like I was being watched when I was there. And she told police that she had told Andreas about her concerns, but he just brushed her off basically and was like, not a concern, which I'm assuming back at this time, you know, she was a live-in maid in the early 1900s. I'm going to assume there wasn't a whole lot of respect there necessarily between the man of the house and the maid. It was, I think it's the low, lowest of the house versus the one in charge of the house, you know? I think it was more just probably that dynamic that was what people were used to back then, that him brushing it off was kind of considered normal. With this information and with the information of the footprints and the newspaper and the keys going missing and all of these things, the police determined that the killer had most likely been living in the house for over six months with the family, which Mm. I hate these stories so much. Because it's so creepy. Mm -hmm. It's like my worst fear. And we've covered stories like this and talked about before. But that is just so unsettling. And I feel like at that point, I would never, ever feel comfortable in a home again. I don't know how you could feel. Like, it just takes away this entire sense of privacy. So, Michael and Jacob had also talked with police because they were one of the first people that had arrived at the house with Lorenz. And they were the ones that had discovered the body. And when they were giving their statement to the police, they mentioned that Lorenz had actually been acting really suspicious when they got to the house. He, They said that he seemed to be really calm and comfortable, and it kind of creeped them out. Like, he was touching and moving the bodies around and stuff. And they thought it was kind of strange. Yeah, that's fair. I mean... You can never really know how people are going to react in those situations, but like physically touching the bodies, that's unless you're like checking for a pulse, but it sounds like they're pretty clearly dead. It's a weird thing to do. I agree. Well, and police kind of were like, maybe he was just in shock and didn't know how to respond. And so that was just what he did. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm thinking to myself, that's probably not the way to go about it. But what do I know? No. It wasn't until a year later when the murder weapon was actually found the pickaxe that had been used they ended up finding it in the attic i don't have a great reason for why the attic was not checked prior to this and it took a year before they found it because there had been i mean there had been reports and police were like oh well they may have been living up there why were we not checking that day one Maybe day two. Yeah. It's like, was that over, was it overlooked or was it actually not there and the killer brought it back? But that seems weird too. It does seem weird. From my understanding, so I, the house itself ended up being completely destroyed in 1923. So a year later. So I, I don't know if the axe was found, like they were doing one last sweep through the house before they destroyed it and then they found it or if they found it because I I don't know the exact timeline of exact date when the pickaxe was found exact date when the house was destroyed but it was found before the house was destroyed luckily but from what I understood there was no evidence that they really got off of this axe over the last 100 years the case has been open and closed and multiple times and there have been over a hundred different people suspected as being involved in this case in one way or another there's also the question of did one person do this? Did two people do this? You know, I had mentioned that I, the police thought that maybe the killer had somehow lured the family out to the barn one by one. But it begs the question of how. Like, what would cause a person to 
go out to the barn one by one. It's like maybe one person went out and then as someone was like, they haven't come back in a while. Let me go check. And they're like, they haven't come back in a while. Let me go check. The last person was like, shit, let me go check. This is like <laughs> a horror movie. But like maybe, I guess. I don't I don't know. I And I almost wonder, you know, did two of them go out there to do chores? And when they were out there, they were attacked. And then the other two went out to check or so. I don't know. But it does make you question if there was more than one person involved in this. The police also, as I mentioned, determined that the person that had murdered them was most likely somebody that knew the family and definitely somebody that knew the way around the farm because they were able to do all the chores. They were able to handle everything on their own. They knew the layout of everything. The brutality of the murders also suggested that the person that did it was personally angry with one or all of the members of this family. There was some initial speculation that possibly Andreas, the father and grandfather, had committed the murders and then killed himself because there had been some different allegations of domestic violence against him. There was also the ancestral relationship that had been going on. So people didn't have a great view of him, but the autopsy did quickly turn this away. And they're like, it's impossible that the injuries that he received were self-inflicted i was gonna say that's not a typical way to commit suicide by any means. no i i mean i would ask that question if you know everybody was beat to death and then he just was shot and the gun was laying next to him sure let's mm-hmm. let's consider that theory now but it there was nothing that pointed to that and he was very brutally killed so it is pretty much impossible the police also were able to quickly dismiss the idea of it being a robbery gone wrong Nothing had been stolen. There was money and jewelry that had been left in plain sight. And everything just appeared to be normal other than the murders. The two main suspects that they had at this time were Lorenz Schlittenberg, who was the first one on the scene of the crime, if you remember. And he, like everybody said, acted kind of strange at the scene of the crime. He also would have known the layout of the farm and where everything would have been kept at the family's house. The motive is where the question comes in. Like, why would he have been the one to do it? And it's because he may have been the father of Victoria's youngest son, Yosef. So I had mentioned that it possibly was her father that was her son's father as well. But police and people in the area also thought that it could have been Lorenz. Apparently at times... Lorenz would sometimes claim that Joseph was his and that he was the father. And then other times he would immediately deny it. And so it makes you question a lot of things. One, why he would lie about either way. But he refused to pay child support. He honestly was really harsh on the family after the incestuous claims came out and everything. But at some point towards the end of their lives, Lorenz did end up accepting that he was the father and he did pay child support, but he wasn't a a fan of it. He still didn't like the family. At this time, he was married to a new woman. They had had a child of their own. However, their child died just a few days after birth. And so it's believed that he could have just been really frustrated that that was the way that life had turned out and that she was getting to raise their son, Yosef. And if that was the case, you know, there was all this stuff speculating, but couple things ruled him out, including the fact that supposedly his wife said that he was home at the time of the murder, so it wouldn't have been him. 
nobody had seen him on the property at any point in time. And he was also an asthmatic. And so police were like, I don't think he would have been physically capable of beating six people to death by himself. I also think, you know, if he did have a wife and he was living in that home, there's also no way that he would have been living in the family's home as well in their attic. So I think that could help kind of rule him out. The other person that is was suspected at the time is a man named Carl Gabriel. So Carl was actually Victoria's husband and the father of her first child, Cecilia. Now, when we first started the episode, I mentioned that Victoria was a widow. It was believed that Carl had actually died in World War One, but they had never found his body because it was believed he died from a bomb that had gone off. And so they were like, was it actually him that died? And so they were like, maybe he took a different soldier's identity and came home and found out, you know, about this charge with Andreas and Victoria having this incestual charge and the fact that she then had another child. Like, there's a lot of things that he could have came home to that could have really frustrated him. So it was this belief that possibly that. Seems weird that he would have killed his daughter, though, in that situation. It seems really far-fetched, the whole thing. And they ended up dismissing it because there was no physical evidence that he had died, but there were a lot of witnesses that had seen him die in the bombing. So that that ended up being ruled out. So they didn't really have anybody that they could go off of. Those are the only suspects that they really had at the time. Now, something weird that I didn't mention. So I mentioned the autopsy had been completed, but after the autopsy was done, the heads of all six victims were actually removed by the doctor and sent to Munich for investigation. And then they were given to clairvoyance, the heads were, to try to find information. So all six of the bodies were actually buried without their heads. And then they, while they were investigating these their heads and doing research or whatever on them, they ended up losing their heads during the Second World War. And they were never found. How does that happen? I don't know. Okay. Well, that's really sad. It's extremely sad. So to this day, the family, the, all six of them are buried, but their heads are not with them, which is just weird to me. I, I don't know the exact thought process, but nothing really, nothing came out of it. They didn't find anything from it that it was a, of use. In 1971, a woman named Teresa came forward to police and said, you know, I think that I overheard my two brothers admitting to my mother that they had committed the murders. She said that she had overheard this conversation when she was about 12 years old. And then her mother shortly after ended up committing suicide by building a pyre in the kitchen, sitting in the middle of it, and then setting it on fire. That seems like a murder to me, not a suicide. But that's a whole different story. So I don't know if there's any stock in that, but they ended up dismissing that because they were like, there's no evidence. We don't even know that your brothers actually knew the family. There's no, nothing that connects them. Then in 1999, an elderly woman called the authorities and said, you know, my former landlord told me that they have information about the killings. And so police officers investigated this and they were like, the landlord made this claim in 1935 And so we should probably like reach out to them and find out what they know. But when they finally reached out, because it had been so long, the potential suspect that the landlord had mentioned initially in 1935 was already deceased. And so they couldn't even investigate that very far. In 2007, the case was opened again. And there were a bunch of students at 
a police academy in Germany that used a bunch of modern techniques and DNA things to try to investigate the case. And in this, they were able to rule out all but one suspect that they believe committed the murders. However, the person that they were not able to rule out, the person that they suspect did it, is deceased at this time. And so they wanted to be respectful and not publicly name that person because there was no way of proving guilt or innocence in that, which I respect that for sure. It's been a hundred years, over a hundred years since this murder was committed, this gruesome murder of six individuals, and it's still unsolved. Nobody knows who would have had this extreme anger towards the family to want to murder all of them, but I think that this is one of those cases that we may never have full answers to. Thanks to listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.